First John is where we're going to be for the summer. If you are new to the Bible, I want to invite you just to go to the front a uh, couple pages, and you'll find there a table of contents, and you can easily find the page number in your Bible for First John. First John, verse one through verse four. Everybody there, when you got it in front of you, give me a robust amen. All right, I heard two. Not there yet. Take your time, but not too much time. Clock's ticking. You didn't want to use this. Casey, you good? <laughs> amen? All right. First John. 1 through 4. Follow along. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, we ask that as we come into this new series on First John, that you would help us to that you would help us to understand this truth that is uh, communicated through your apostle to a church in time past, but is living in a, in a powerful word that is uh, that is brought to us today in the 21st century. We ask that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We on here? Very good. Benjamin Franklin once said, the, the learned fool communicates his language, or I'm sorry, his nonsense, in better language than the unlearned fool. But it's still nonsense. Are you learning from fools just because they're educated? Are you learning from fools just because they know how to turn a phrase and make you think? This is actually why the letter of 1 John was written. It's because fools had entered into the church. And man, they could turn a phrase. 
They were educated. They can make you think. John here is writing to address an issue that is at hand in a local church. What is this? It's a letter that's written. We call these epistles. It just means letter. It was written by John, the same John that wrote the gospel. It was written to a congregation that he loves, a congregation that he sees as as dear children. And he's writing because there are fools that are sweeping people away. It seems to be somewhat of an early Gnostic philosophy that has entered into this local church. Gnostic philosophy, that's the stuff that the Da Vinci Code movie and book is made out of. Gnostic philosophy, it's sort of this idea that that the God of the Bible is actually wicked and, and evil. And Jesus came not as a prophet of that God, but Jesus came as a prophet against that God. And Jesus came with a secret. And the secret is this, is that flesh is bad. Why? It's because the God that is evil created this world, and so therefore all that he created is bad, meaning your flesh. And Jesus then, himself, was not fully flesh, but he was removed from the flesh. Now, probably some early form of that is what has entered into the church here. And what's happening as a result is this. Since flesh is essentially evil, what they're teaching is that nobody should ever suffer. You should never suffer. You should never be sad. But instead, you should only seek pleasure wherever you can find it. Sexual immorality... Glutton, gluttony, drunkenness. Just simply eat, drink, and be merry. And so they have created this religion which has bypassed faith in the true Jesus Christ, and it has actually led them to this very licentious kind of lifestyle within the church where everybody's sinning and seems to be uh, fine with it. The crazy thing is that fools present their ideas and their slick philosophies as true enlightenment. Which means if you want to be in the light, you need to know these things, these secrets. And fools will say to those who cling to faith in Jesus Christ that you are, in fact, in the dark. Well, John is directly addressing this. As John looks at those faithful and says, no, you are in the light. We're beginning a series this morning in this letter, this book of 1 John. And we're going to follow it throughout the entire summer. And we're calling the series In the Light. But I want to start on this theme this morning in this preface, these first four verses on the topic, cling to the message of Jesus. Cling to the message of Jesus. While our issues that we face today in 
the church, and in society aren't necessarily Gnostic philosophy full force. Satan has a way of recycling old stuff. There really is nothing new under the sun. Satan has old strategies that he recycles and renews for every generation. And today there are hundreds of attacks against the divinity of Jesus Christ. There are attacks against the existence and therefore the humanity of Jesus Christ. There are attacks against the Bible itself, which is why we're doing a conference in October on the Bible. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible credible? And these attacks come from everything from YouTube to the university. And everything in between. And we are told that to be a Christian is to be duped. To be a Christian is to be in the dark. And if you want to really be enlightened, you need to come out of Christianity. You need to come away from these old ideas that have kept too many generations down and you need to be enlightened. And listen, there are attacks not just outside the church, but there are attacks within the church. Sometimes I think the greatest dangers we face are not the attacks outside of the church, but the attacks coming from within so-called churches. Movements which are all about money. We're going to take four offerings this morning. If you can give $500, come down front, pad my pockets, and if you pad my pockets, God will pad yours. All the while, 80% of the people are still living in Section 8 housing, and the pastor is living out in Annapolis somewhere. These movements which say, you should never suffer as a Christian. You should be blessed and prosperous alone as a Christian. As long as you give to the ministry, by the way. Or, or kind of another angle within the church, churches which have abandoned what we've always believed to be true. Churches which have abandoned things like substitutional atonement of Jesus uh, uh, Jesus Christ for, for us and for our salvation. Or the truth and the inerrancy of Scripture. A radical openness. An affirmation of absolutely everything under the sun. Unless you're a Bible-believing Christian. It's a little quiet in the room. First John is not so much written. It's not so much written to the false teachers, to the deceivers as they're called. It's not really written as like an apologetic, if you would. But First John is actually written to genuine 
Christians in the church who are clinging to the message of Jesus Christ. Which means this, as you read 1 John, 1 John is to come at you as encouragement, not discouragement. 1 John is written to protect and affirm those who are clinging with all of their might to the message of Jesus Christ as delivered by the apostles. It's written then to people like a lot of you who in the face of challenges, in the face of those who want to cause doubt in your mind, in the face of those who want to detract from the message of Christ, in the face of those who want to call you weird for believing what you believe, it's written to encourage you to say, no, you're in the light. You're believing something that is real. And you should be encouraged. What I want to do this morning as we kind of get into this book and verses 1 through 4 is really just a preface. I want to look at this preface. I want to look at these four verses. And I want to just simply be encouraged in our uh, clinging to the message of Jesus. And I want to draw out for you three things that the person who clings to the message of Jesus knows. Three things which the person who clings to the message of Jesus knows. The first one is this. It's found in verses 1 and 2. The first one is this. The, The person who clings to the message of Jesus knows that the message is credible. Everybody say credible. The message of Jesus is credible. The other day, this past week, I was over here at the Y on Druid Hill and uh, was sharing the gospel with a 16-year-old who I've known for a number of years at the Y and for the first time had the opportunity, opportunity to actually explain the gospel to him. And he just dropped it in my lap. He said, he said, do you ever try to prove to people that God exists? And I was like, yeah, sometimes. He's like, go ahead. Now? You don't know what you're asking. <laughs> so I was explaining our beliefs to him, and I, but I, I started with God, all right? God is this transcendent God. He's the cre- Now, if God is transcendent, if he is the creator, the only way, this is what I was explaining to him, the only way that we would know this God is if this God revealed himself to us. Am I right? Which means if I created this chair right here, the only way that chair would know me is if I revealed myself to the chair. Which is probably a bad analogy because chairs don't have an intellect, etc., Anyway, forget that analogy if you don't like it. Whatever. So, so I said, so, so even beginning in the story, God reveals himself to Adam and Eve, and he walks with them in the garden. Uh, after the fall, so sin comes into the world, we're disconnected from God. We don't have a, a natural relationship with God any longer, and God continues to reveal himself to people. So he speaks to a man named uh, Abram. And makes a covenant with him. God then uh, reveals himself to a man named Moses in a burning bush. And not only that, but then God intervenes uh, with the natural way of the world through parting a Red Sea and through a number of plagues just to show that he is indeed God. Are you tracking with me? 
So what I was saying was like, the only way that human beings can ever know God is if, is if this God reveals himself to human beings. And so then my 16-year-old friend, he said, all right, he cut me off actually, which is funny. He said, so why didn't God just become a human? I was like, oh, <laughs> through the mouth of babes. <laughs> so I jumped forward in the story. <laughs> well, he did. All right, so, you know, Jesus. So I explained that God became human. Now look at this text. This is essentially what this text is saying. As, it's, as John wants us to know that this message is credible, he shows us that the eternal entered into space and time. We see this in the first two verses. There's this dynamic contrast. Verse 1, he begins it, that which was from the beginning. That sounds a lot like the Gospel, doesn't it? The Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, etc. So he begins his letter in the same way. That which was from the beginning. What he's saying is, is from the beginning, before all things, uh, Jesus was there. This doesn't say that Jesus ever had a beginning himself. He's saying when everything began, Jesus was already there. Are you tracking with John's thinking here? So he's appealing now to the pre not only the pre-existence of Jesus, but the eternality of Jesus. This eternal God, this eternal entity, this eternal being. And then he goes on in this verse to talk about how we've seen him. We, we've looked at him. We've touched him. We've heard him. He's saying that the, the eternal entered into time and space, became human. Again, in verse 2, verse 2 is kind of a parenthesis, and at the end of verse 2, we see another contrast here. He says that he was with the Father and was made manifest, which means he was revealed to us. The eternal... God became human, entered into space and time. The word that we use is incarnate. And then he goes on to show us that this incarnate Jesus was verified. Look at verse 2, or verse 1. He appeals here to the three upper-level senses, which is hearing, seeing, and, and touch, feeling. He says, so th that which was eternal, he says, he's come and look at it. He says, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon him, we have touched with our hands, oh, I, I missed one, go back all the way to the second line there, we have heard. We have heard, we have seen, and we have touched. Now, there, there's sort of a progressive nature to that, which means that if we just heard him, I mean, that would have been amazing to hear the voice of God. But he's saying, like, in some sense, hearing that, that's not quite enough to verify it for you because it's possible that we got something going on in our head and we're hearing voices. So not only do we hear him, but he came closer. We, we saw him. We looked upon him. Gazed upon him. Looking upon him. That would be phenomenal. But then he goes on to say we touched him. 
And that word touch means to, 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 uh, to grope or uh, to examine. You get a picture of maybe being in a dark room and, and you're finding your way around and, and you find, your hands find something, you're examining whatever it is that you just found with your hands. That's the word that he uses there. We examined him. Which means that what John is saying is we have conclusive proof that this eternal God was flesh, was human, was among us. So many of us live with a fear of the unknown. We're afraid of the things that we don't know. Afraid of, uh, of the possible end to a certain employment or afraid of a financial crisis in our own life, not being able to pay the bills or pay the rent, or we're afraid of what might happen with our children or what might happen with our loved ones. We live in some sense with this, this fear of what we don't know. Listen, how kind is it of God to reveal Himself to humanity in such a way that we might truly know Him? Like the, the most important thing in your life, which would be having a relationship with God. This God has not made it difficult for us. But like my 16-year-old friend, his, his idea was, what if he just becomes human? Good idea. God became human so that we might have conclusive proof that he's with us. So that we might know him. The message is credible. Secondly, the message is authoritative. It's authoritative. Look at verse 2. He calls this one, who is Jesus, he calls him the life. You see that right there? The life. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? That's a pretty big nickname to have for somebody. This, like, imagine if I was like, hey, everybody, this is Montrell in the back. My friend Montrell, he is the life. You're like, what? Heresy. Blasphemy. To call someone the life, that is a huge claim. And he doesn't just simply call him the life as if that's our personal nickname, but he goes on to explain that this is built on a message that is for all people. A message then that it has authority, that is for you, that must be believed. He says the life, it was made manifest. Christ was made manifest. And we have seen it. And we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. This message of Jesus is authoritative. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Authority of proclamation is based on authority of experience for the apostles. Authority of testimony. You see, first he says we testify, and then he says we proclaim. Our proclamation, John is saying, is based on what we saw. And you weren't there, but I was. And that's what I'm proclaiming to you. 
That's essentially what he's saying. Imagine if you were in a conversation with some friends about the World Trade Center on September 11th, uh, 2001. And, and, and you're talking about what, what must it have been like to have been there? And one of, one of your friends says, you know, I, I just imagine it being so loud and like piercing and just I, the noise is what I think I would remember. And someone else says, I think if I was there, I don't think it'd be the noise as much as just like the, the, the darkness of the concrete and just the swell of ash. And then someone else who's standing in your group says, well, I was there and I can tell you what it was like. All of a sudden, the room kind of hushes, doesn't it? Now we all of a sudden have an authority in the room. Well, let me tell you what it was like. And nobody's going to argue with him because he was there. So we can call it an authority of experience. And so the disciples are saying, we were there. We, we saw him. We, we, there's conclusive proof, like he was with us. And of course, he's talking about so much more. He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension. We were there. We saw it. And what we saw, based on the authority of our testimony, we then proclaim to you. Meaning we have an experiential right to be writing these things and to be talking about these things which you ought to believe. So then there he proclaims, look at verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. The verb, for the first time, we actually see the main verb in these first four verses. After verse 1 and 2 comes verse 3 with the main verb, which is we proclaim. Why is he giving us this proclamation so uh, late, what I, what I think he wants us to show or to, to know in the first two verses is that this proclamation is based on conclusive evidence. It's credible. And so then, therefore, it becomes authoritative for us as this message is proclaimed by the apostles. Listen, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that the Christian message is not based on just some philosophy or some idea or some list of rules. But the Christian message is based on an actual event which took place in space and time. Unlike, you might say, all the other world religions. Let's just think about Muhammad. His message is based on a vision that one person, he, supposedly received in a cave that he then verbally communicated to others. Or Buddhism, which is essentially a philosophy, a way of life, an idea. Or what we could call prosperity, health, wealth. Churches, which is really just based on new thought philosophy, or those who have abandoned the historic uh, understanding of the Scriptures. And really, that's just based on enlightenment philosophy. 
But what we believe, and I think this is what John is saying, what you believe is not just based on somebody's philosophy or just one person's individual vision that they received or just an idea of how life should be. But what you have received is based on something that actually happened. It's based on something that a number of people have experienced together. And with that authority of experience, them are proclaiming these things, which we're going to get into for the rest of the book. He's proclaiming these things to us. So one way that we can apply this, family, is that when we come to church on Sundays, we ought to come with a receptivity. We ought to come with an openness, a readiness to receive the Word of God as it is proclaimed. Like, what are we doing Sunday after Sunday? What am I doing up here? Is this just time for somebody to talk and share ideas? No. What ought to be happening week after week with whoever stands in this space is a proclamation of God's Word for God's people. And so then we ought to come ready to receive God's Word. And it's, it's not a passive listening, but it's an active listening. It's almost like, like we, don't, we don't listen like this with our arms crossed. What do you got for me today? Go ahead and entertain me. Do something, right? We listen like this with a sense of readiness, right? With our feet ready. And I'm not really talking about your posture because your posture can fool me. All right? I'm talking about of the, the posture of your heart, of your spirit. We listen with a, a, a readiness to apply what is being said, what is being taught from God's Word. Why? It's because we come with this expectancy that God's Word will be taught and with an understanding that His Word is authoritative in our life. Are you with me? The message is credible. The message is authoritative. And finally, the person who clings to the message of Jesus knows that the message is effective, which means the message does something. It does something. What does it do? Well, I'll just give you the answer. What, he, what we see here is it brings us into fellowship and ultimately it brings us to a place of joy. Which, by the way, ties nicely in with Psalm 42 and 43, doesn't it? Joy. It brings us to joy. I recently read a story of a woman named Linda who, who was going to take uh, in her little beat-up Honda Civic, she was going to drive this Civic through this rugged, dangerous road from Alberta to, um, oh, my mind is blank, let me find it, way up north somewhere, the Yukon. Anybody ever been there? Me neither. That's why I couldn't think of it. So she's going to drive this dangerous road, and uh, 
She has no clue that a Honda is just not going to quite cut it. So 5 a.m., she wakes up early, excited, ready to go. And she looks out and she realizes that there's this thick fog all over the mountains. But at breakfast, so she doesn't be made to look like a fool in this hotel where she's staying, she determines, no, I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going I'm to make it in my Honda. So a couple truckers, two truckers meet her at breakfast, and, and they say, where are you going? They ask her, where are you going? And she tells them, and they say, no, you're not. Not in that Honda. And she says, well, I'm going to give it my, my best shot. And they say, well, I guess we're going to have to hug you. And she said, absolutely not. Get away from me. And, she, and they were like, no, 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 not like that. We're going we're gonna to hug you on the road. We're going to put one truck in front of you, directly in front of you, and one truck directly behind you, just enough space for your little Civic. And you're just going to follow our lights, and we're going to guide you through the pass. And that's how she made it, through being hugged. Listen, as we think about fellowship, too often we think of fellowship as just a physical hug. And that's good, that's important. We should express our care for for each other, don't get me wrong. But fellowship is so much more than that, isn't it? Fellowship is having somebody alongside us who can get us up this road and through this dangerous journey. Look what John says. He goes on in verse 3. He says, that which we've seen, we heard, we proclaim also to you so that, here's the purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. Fellowship. One of the most misunderstood words in the church. getting together with the boys for fellowship. What do you mean by that? Going to have a fellowship dinner. What is fellowship? Fellowship, it, it, it means uh, some shared uh, commonality, a shared experience. Have you ever heard of the phrase, thick as thieves? Why do we say, man, they're thick as thieves? Why do we say that? It's because if you've ever stolen anything with somebody, there's a commonality that grows there. And you get thick with each other until you start ratting each other out. But when you have some kind of shared experience together, there is a, a thickness that develops in that relationship. And that's really what fellowship is, is this shared experience, this commonality. Now, Christian fellowship is both horizontal, but it's also first vertical. What I mean by that is it, it begins with our relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with God? Don't assume that. Ask yourself, do I have a relationship with God? And the answer for all of us is yes, the next question is, is, is that relationship one of wrath or one of grace? 
How is it that we move from a relationship of wrath to a relationship of grace? It is through seeing and receiving the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose blood was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. When Jesus hung on the cross, God's wrath for my sin was placed onto his own shoulders. He bore the weight of it. It killed him. It crushed him. It buried him in the ground. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death and defeating the grave and burying my sin in the ground forever. And God accepts that sacrifice for me and brings me into a right relationship with Him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you ever turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? Run to Him. Embrace Him. Cling to Him. Receive Him as your sacrifice, as your hope, as your Savior. Now, our horizontal mano y mano fellowship in the Christian community is based on that vertical reality. How is it that we know the message of that vertical reality? Well, it is through what was testified and proclaimed. And so what John is saying is, is as this message is being received, it brings you into fellowship with us. Which is really, I love that. I mean, a lot of us, if we were apostles and we had this experience, we would, we would keep a lot, of, a lot of our experience and a lot of our information to ourselves. Like, this is just for me. But they're not stingy with what they received from Christ. They are giving it. And not only are they giving it, but what they're saying is this, is when you receive it, you have fellowship with the apostles. And not just with them, but you have fellowship with the one who they have fellowship with. And that is with Jesus Christ and the Father. Which means that when we receive this message of Jesus, we have the same kind of fellowship with Christ that they had. We're brought into fellowship with each other. John Stott said, when rightly understood, Fellowship is the essence of salvation, which means that we are forgiven of our sins. We have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are brought into relationship with God and with each other. The church, as Michael Horton said, the church then is not just a circle of friends, but the church is the family of God. The church is not just simply a stage for someone to perform their individual solo, but the church is the garden of God. As we are hugged by one another. Yes, we physically show our love for each other as we give each other a warm embrace on Sunday mornings. But more than that, we are hugged by those who know the road and have gone before us. We are hugged by the apostolic testimony and word that is proclaimed to us. And we are hugged by those around us and are coming behind us who are on this same dangerous journey with us and we're going to get there together. This is why we cling to the message. 
And this is what the person who clings to the message knows. And this is, this is their hope. The ultimate purpose, we'll close with this, is in verse 4. The ultimate purpose is our joy. He says, so that our joy may be complete, or that could be written, so the joy of all of us might be complete. What the apostle is saying is, is that when you, my beloved, when you receive this message, and when we then come into fellowship with God and each other, our joy, my joy, and your joy will be complete. And I think there's a future reality to this. And that one day it will be complete. It will be fulfilled as we are in complete fellowship with Jesus Christ. Do you have this kind of joy? As you cling to the message of Christ, does it bring joy into your life? Does the fellowship of God and His community add to the joy of your life? In the 200s, during a time of persecution, there was an old man who was dying. And he penned his last words to a friend, and he said this. He said, it's, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of a quiet and holy people those who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. The message of Jesus Christ has come with conclusive evidence. So therefore, we cling to Christ and we are hugged by the fellowship of God through Christ, the message proclaimed by the apostles and through His church, and that leads us to great joy. Why is it that Christians read their Bibles? It's because it leads them to joy. Why is it that we gather week after week? It's because we know where joy is found. Why is it that Christians cling to this message, even when it is unpopular. It's because the message of Jesus Christ brings us to the fullness of joy. Why is it that we resist sinful pleasures when our friends do not? It's because we know that this brings us to the fullness of joy. Our joy is a thousand times better than any pleasure of the sinful life. Why? It's because He is the life. He is the life. There is no real life outside of His life. He is the life. He lived the unique life. His birth was like none other. His young life growing was like none other. His life as a teacher was unique. He then died on the cross like none other. And He rose from the dead three days later like no one else had. And He is coming again to receive us. He is the life. He is our life. And we cling to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. 
for this message of Jesus Christ that has been revealed and delivered to us through your servants. Go, let us cling to this apostolic message. I pray that we would never lose sight of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That He would be our life. That we would have fellowship with each other in Him. And that we would then experience the fullness of joy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.